Thank you, God, that you even created us in the first place. And thank you that when we turn away and do our own thing and ignore you or act like we don't need you, that you continue to love us, Lord. And that you don't love us out of an obligation, but that you genuinely love us and you enjoy inviting us into your presence. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe when we think of how perfect you are and how flawed we can be. But God, we thank you that you do actually enjoy being with us. And we thank you that we have an opportunity to be with you and be in your presence this morning together. We ask that as we worship you, you would be glorified here among us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. If you're visiting with us, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you had a chance to enjoy some of the weather the last couple of days. It's been beautiful. I hope that brightened up your week. At the very least, I hope you had a better week than I did. My last week did not start off so strong. Uh, early on in the week, one of our girls came running into our room at 5.30 in the morning, trying to tell us that her stomach was hurting, and then she immediately threw up all over our bed, and a little bit on us as well. Not exactly my favorite way to wake up. I'm already not a morning person at all, but that did get me out of bed very quickly. <laughs> Now, that was just a small part of the flu adventure that we've been on for the last two weeks, but I think I got it first, so it's been many days. I'm totally clear. You don't have to worry about being around me, and if you see only one other Gansenberg that made it to church today, she's in the clear too, so no worries there. But as we were taking turns getting sick and some extra laundry was piling up, our dryer decided that it was the perfect week to give out. So we ordered a new one. It was supposed to get delivered yesterday. It did not. For some reason or another, it got pushed to the end of this coming week, so one day we will do laundry again. But that time is not now. I would just pick it up myself at this point, but if you get it delivered, they install it for you. And the last time I tried to install a home appliance, it did work, but it took a little longer than it was supposed to. I put our current dishwasher in all by myself. I was very proud of that. I'm not actually that handy. Um, but it did take me almost five hours to complete the process. And when I asked a couple plumber friends around Trinity afterwards how long it should have taken, they said roughly four hours less than that. <laughs> so this time I decided to ask for help and I'm gonna let somebody else do the installation. I haven't always been very good at asking for help though, and I think I get that from my dad. Uh, he's much more handy than me, but I think because of that, because he can fix almost anything, it's even easier to try to do everything by himself. Now, he's here today, so I'm only going to give you one example. I'm not going to go through a bunch of stories. Um, but one of my favorite ones involved trying to hang up some Christmas lights. So he was out front and in front of our house trying to hang up some Christmas lights, and he didn't quite have the right ladder for the job. I actually think we probably did have a massive construction ladder in our garage, but using that one would have required asking someone to come out and help, to help carry it out and set it up. So he decided to take a shortcut instead. He grabbed two step ladders and he set one up on top of the other one. Now, if you've ever been on a step ladder before, you may have noticed that there's a little warning label on the side that says you're not supposed to stand on the very top part of it. And it doesn't say this part, but I think it's only fair to assume that if you're not supposed to stand on the top of it, you're probably not supposed to set another ladder up on top of it either. So he began the ascent, and the first ladder went fine, but as he got into the second one, things started getting a little bit wobbly. My mom stepped outside just in time to say, I don't think this looks like a good idea. 
and it was not. The ladders ended up tipping in opposite directions, and he landed on the driveway in between them. He's okay. He's okay. He's very resilient. <laughs> now, it might not involve installing a dishwasher or ignoring the warning labels on step ladders, but if we took some time to go around the room, I bet you could all share a handful of different stories of situations where you tried to do something on your own and it didn't end up working out quite so well. We live in a very individualistic society, so we take pride in our independence, our self-reliance, our ability to make it on our own. Many of us don't like to ask for help. We have a hard time being vulnerable or getting deep with each other. And on top of all that, uh, so many things we hear in our culture encourage us to find fulfillment by looking inward and living on our own and for ourselves. And today I want to take a closer look at some of that and see what God might say about it. And we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes for the past few weeks. And Ecclesiastes can be a pretty confusing book, even outright unsettling at times. But as we read it alongside of all of God's Word, we just might find that God still speaks to us through it today. Uh, so this morning we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. If you want to follow along in a Bible, there should be one right in the back of the seat in front of you, a blue one. And if you open that up right in the middle, you'll probably end up in the book of Psalms or Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes comes right after that. So go Psalms, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, and we'll be reading from chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. But before we take a look at this, let's pray one more time. God, as we look at your words, uh, we know these were written so long ago, but yet we trust that they still speak to us even in our lives today. God, you know how each of us walked in here, the things that are on our minds, the things that have been going on the past few days and weeks and months, uh, and we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive what you have to say and that you would speak into our very lives and the things that are going on with us and around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has never seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all the toil and achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone who had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. At first glance, you could read through this chapter, and it might feel like it's hitting on several different topics that don't even necessarily relate to each other. But after looking a little closer, I think there is a common thread that runs through this whole section. And that's the idea that as human beings, we often live for ourselves. 
even viewing others with a lens of competition or comparison. But the more that we live for ourselves, the more likely we are to end up feeling empty and alone. Well, on the other hand, when we live for others, even when that involves real costly sacrifice, we find that life is even more fulfilling. And that's because God created us to live and thrive with meaningful relationships. But we have to stop living for ourselves and start living for each other in order to experience the kind of community that God created for us. So with that in mind, let's look back and go through the different sections of this passage. Starting with the first three verses again. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has never seen the evil that is done under the sun. Have you ever been watching the news and something so heartbreaking comes on that you just turn it off partway through because you can't watch it anymore? Or maybe you've been following certain stories or current events online and you just have to stop reading about them because it's too much to keep hearing about the suffering and the depth of pain. These verses here at the beginning of this chapter sound pretty dark, but that's the same idea that Ecclesiastes is getting at when it says that the dead are better off than the living, and that it would be even better to have never been born at all and not know about all the evil that takes place in this world. Sometimes we don't want to look at all the suffering that happens around us. Sometimes we don't want to see all the oppression that takes place in this world. We can go to great lengths to distract ourselves or even convince ourselves that it's really not that bad. But for some of us, we can't convince ourselves. We've experienced it or we know someone personally who has and we know what it feels like. And the Bible doesn't shy away from topics like this. All over its pages, we see how fired up God gets about oppression, how he responds to injustice and calls us to respond to it as well. And it may help to look at a few examples and consider how they even relate to things closer to our time today. So even starting from the earliest pages of the Bible, we read about how the Egyptians felt threatened by the growing Israelite population among them, and in response, Egypt enslaved the Israelites. They abused them and took advantage of them, forcing them into slave labor and benefiting at their expense. Deuteronomy 26 recaps this saying, But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. And if we look at the story of oppression, we might think that this is only about something that happened 4,000 years ago, but yet there are so many other examples like it. Even looking at our own country's history with slavery, segregation, and some of the continued issues of racial injustice that have grown out of that and keep resurfing, resurfacing even today. It might also bring to mind the ongoing realities of sexual trafficking and forced labor, which still happen here in America and all around the world. Moving further on into the Old Testament, we find many of the prophets use their words to speak out about oppression. Taking the book of Amos just as one example, it opens up with words of judgment for a handful of different nations surrounding Israel and the injustices they've been committing. If we read through those oracles on our own later, it might make us think of things going on in Ukraine or Afghanistan, Somalia, Myanmar, or North Korea. 
And if we continue on into chapter 2, we see that God turns his attention even towards his own people, saying, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. It's all too common for those with power and status to be tempted to take advantage of others if they could probably get away with it. Like when someone abuses another person that they can easily overpower. When a leader acts inappropriately but makes it intimidating for victims to come forward. Or even when a boss treats their employees unfairly and there's not much they can do about it. And it's easy for us to overlook those who are unheard when they try to speak up. Reading this passage again this week makes me wonder how much I listen to the voices of people that are easy to ignore, who have greater needs around me. Do I pause to consider whether they have enough access to quality education, job opportunities, nutrition, or health care? And oppression and injustice are challenged like this all over the Bible, but there's still such serious and staggering issues today, and it makes us ask, why? Why is it like this? Why does this continue to happen? And certainly there are all kinds of causes combined together in different ways, but at the root, oppression and injustice are only possible when sin leads us to live for ourselves above the others around us, to see our neighbors as someone to compete against, to see those who are different than us as a threat, and to seek our own benefit at the expense of someone else. But as we read on in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, no matter how much we live for ourselves, even when we seek our own way above others, it doesn't actually leading, end up leading to our own fulfillment anyway. It only leaves us empty and isolated. So let's continue on looking at verses 4 through 8 now, where it says, I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Here in New England, we certainly emphasize the values of hard work, productivity, efficiency, success, accomplishment. But in verse 4, the writer of Ecclesiastes challenges us each to consider how much of that is motivated by envy, by comparison, by the urge to compete against the people around us. We want to get into the right college, get an impressive job, or make more money so we can keep up with everyone else. We want a nicer car, a bigger house, or a better lawn so we can measure ourselves against the people around us. Comparison is one of the most common ways that we can be tempted to try to find our value. If only we're smarter than, or funnier than, or better looking than, more creative than, or more successful than most other people, that might prove that we actually matter, that we're worth something. But chasing after that kind of validation is like chasing the wind because there's always someone that we can't keep up with. And so the marathon never ends and we don't find that fulfillment that we're after. As we go to verses 5 and 6, we see this, these are a pair of Proverbs actually highlighted in opposition against each other as a contrast. Verse 5 is a reminder that laziness leads to self-destruction. But in case we would use that as an excuse to go too far in the other direction, verse 6 is a warning that overworking is just as unhealthy. 
And this is probably different for different personalities, but I would say in our culture, the overworking is probably the bigger temptation for most of us. Overworking is celebrated. It's seen as a sign of importance. We pride ourselves on how many hours we work, how little sleep we're getting, how many different things we're a part of. Many of us are stretched too thin, and we know it, but everyone else is too, and so we have to keep up that pace to try to keep up with them. But this simple proverb in verse 6 is a challenge to remember that we were created for work and for rest, for purpose and for play. And if we neglect the second half of that, we can burn ourselves out. We can stop investing in the relationships that matter the most and engaging in the activities that bring us joy. And that's exactly what we see happening in verses 7 and 8 right after this, where there's a man who's endlessly exerting himself and never satisfied with his success because he has no one to share it with and no one to enjoy it with. These verses don't just challenge our motivations for chasing achievement, but they challenge us to consider the cost as well. We may start out wanting to accomplish something meaningful, but what if it starts taking over our lives and isolating us from others? We may think we're just trying to provide for our families, but what if we end up depriving them of our presence in the process? It's so easy to bring work home, check our phones during dinner, answer emails after hours, get a little extra work done on our off days. It's almost expected in a lot of industries, but there's a trade-off. The more we overwork, the less time we have to invest in and enjoy each other. Now, there is a difference between working like this because we're chasing after the wind, as this passage says, and working like this because we have to. And in certain situations and seasons, that might be the case. But if it starts to become the constant pattern, it's worth stopping to reflect and counting the cost of the lifestyle that we're living. Because chasing after achievement Seeking value in comparison and endlessly overworking all have a way of consuming us before we even realize it and isolating us away from others. It's a different path than the oppression and injustice that we looked at first, but it can still lead in a similar direction where we only see others as competition and where we only end up living for ourselves and ultimately end up disconnected and unfulfilled. Fortunately, after verse 8, the entire tone of this passage changes, and we move on to verses 9 through 12, where a different picture is painted, where we see a vision for a more meaningful life in the kind of community that God created us for. So look, let's look at verses 9 through 12 again here, where it says, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. There's a big difference between working against someone and working with someone. When we work together, we can find a deeper connection over a shared purpose. We can encourage each other along the way, complement each other with our different gifts and strengths. And oftentimes our success isn't just added together, but it's multiplied beyond what either of us would be able to accomplish on our own. When we live in community instead of competition, we can help each other up after we fall. As I read through verse 10 this week, I thought about what it would have been like if I had been alone for some of my biggest injuries. Then I thought about what it would have been like if my brother had been alone for some of his biggest injuries. We all have that one sibling, right? Maybe some of you guys are that one sibling. 
I remember going on a family vacation about 10 years ago. Um, we were outside walking up a massive hill, and this looked like the perfect spot, perfect spot for him to take his skateboard down. So he grabbed his longboard, he went up, and the first run we watched him go flying by at full speed. But on the second run, the skateboard came down on its own, and we found him lying on the pavement up ahead. Most of his back was skinned off, and he could barely move. I'm sorry for that visual there, but he gave us a list of medical supplies, gauze and bandages and athletic tape and something I had never heard of called second skin. And one of us ran off to CVS, another one helped him hobble back to the house, and he couldn't clean out the cuts or wrap himself up with bandages on his own, but someone else was there to do it. I think of that picture when I read verse 10. But I also think of how this isn't just about a physical fall, even though that's a great illustration for it. This can also apply to other situations in life, like when we make a big mistake and we need someone else there to help us get back on track. When we get laid off and we need to ask for a little help for a little while. Or when we're facing some kind of grief or loss and we need the emotional support of our friends to help pick us back up. Moving on to verse 11, you know, I think that when we go to bed at night, most of us can choose how many blankets we want to use or how high we want to set the heat or at this time of year, how high we want to set the air conditioner. But things weren't so comfortable back when Ecclesiastes was originally written. Going to bed at night often meant getting cold and uncomfortable. And if you were alone, that was all there was to it. But if you had someone else to lean against, you could help each other keep warm overnight. And again, I think we could take this verse both literally but also symbolically as a picture of how we can comfort each other or share our resources with each other. Finishing up in verse 12 here, you know, as the original audience read this, they most likely would have thought of the dangers of traveling alone in the ancient world where an individual on their own would make for an easy target. But a group of two or more at least had a chance to fight back together and defend each other along the way. The situations and threats in our lives might look a lot different, but there's still a certain vulnerability when we feel like we're on our own in life or in certain situations. But when we're together, we can stand up for each other. We can support each other. We can defend each other. And finishing up with this very last line here, there's two different things we can take out of it. I think one is that there's this extra emphasis on the value of relationships that three are even better than two. The more, the better. But it's also often been understood to mean that when God is intertwined in our relationships, they become even stronger. Now, there's so much in life that can tempt us to live for ourselves. And it can feel so much harder to live sacrificially for each other and to live like this passage talks about. But if even a few of us start living like that together, we begin to experience the kind of community that God created us for. And this isn't some kind of coincidence either. It's by design because we've all been made in the image of God. A God who is a trinity, three persons in one. And I don't have time to sidetrack into how complicated that is for us to try to understand. We could talk about that for multiple sermons and probably end up more confused than when we started. But I just want to say one simple thing about that. A purely singular God would have much more emphasis on power and independence. But the Trinitarian God that we worship, who in his very nature is three persons in one together, gives us a foundation for relationships, community, and love. 
And we are made in the image of a God who is relational and connected. So we are meant to make meaningful relationships and to connect in community together as well. And not only has God given us a pattern for that within himself, but Jesus broke into our world and gave us an example of that right in the flesh as well. When we were so often living for ourselves and seeking our own fulfillment, even at the expense of others, Jesus came into this world and did the exact opposite, living for us, giving up his life for us, showing us a genuinely self-sacrificial love. Uh, early on in the history of the church, the Apostle Paul was writing to one of, the, one of the new churches and trying to encourage them to create this kind of community together by following the example of Christ. And if we look at Philippians chapter 2, we hear him saying, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus could have lived for himself. God as a trinity is already self-sufficient, already has meaningful relationships and connections. He never needed to create us in the first place, but he did. And then even when we turned away from him, Jesus gave up his power. Jesus gave up his comfort. Jesus gave up his life all in order to invite you and I back into a relationship with him and into the kind of community that we were created for in the first place. But that kind of community only happens when we receive the sacrificial love of Jesus. When we let it get internalized, not just as a concept in our heads, but deep into our heart until it changes our heart and our spirit and our mind so that we can live it out to each other as well. And Ecclesiastes 4 here is a reminder not to fall into so many different temptations that would stop us from experiencing and being a part of this kind of community. Not to live for ourselves or take advantage of others. Not to chase after achievement, to look for our value in comparison or overwork and end up alone but to find our fulfillment in our relationship with God and in Christ-like community with those around us. But again, we can only find that if we each begin to live with that kind of sacrifice for each other. And so I want to ask you a couple questions, very simple questions. You can add your own if you want, but you can take these home and just think about these a little bit this week. Who are the people that you are serving on a regular basis? Or who are the people that you could be serving on a regular basis? Are you in a small group or is there some other way that you're building meaningful Christ-centered community? And if you're not, is it time to join one? And if you are, is it time to get more vulnerable and open up a little bit so you have the ability to actually support each other? And how could this look in your family, with your friends, or in your neighborhood? And don't go home and think about these ideas as a general concept of relationships and community, but think about concrete situations, real-life relationships that you have, 
And practically, in those specific scenarios, what would it look like if you started living less for yourself and more for others so that we could begin to experience the kind of community that God created us for? Let's pray. God, you have created us for just a beautiful vision of relationships and community. And it sounds so nice, but yet it also takes a lot of sacrifice to get there. And it's hard to be the first one because what if we sacrifice and no one else does for us and we don't even reap the benefits of this? But God, you went first and you sacrificed for each and every one of us, inviting us back into a relationship with you and into this kind of community. So God, we are not even the ones going first and we ask that you would give us the strength to take risks, to be vulnerable, to put ourselves out there, to sacrifice for the people around us in order to invite each other into this kind of community, Lord. And we ask that you would make something beautiful out of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.